Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So, uh, it's a snowy day today, and you're in your car, and you're going somewhere. And first of all, we'd like to keep you company. And second of all, um, this is maybe a time when you think a little bit about whether you're prepared for things that might happen. Hopefully, nothing will happen today, and you know, the roads aren't too bad right now, but then, of course... That's what people say right before things go wrong. Anyway, I'm not trying to introduce a quiver of doom into your life. Nothing like that. But um, we decided to do a show today about survival, about the philosophy of survival, about about why if two people walk into roughly the same situation, um, one of them survives and one of them doesn't, and what you can learn from all that, what you, what you can learn from these stories. So a little bit later on the show today, oh, we're going to talk to John Aldridge. Um, he is an example of somebody who did survive. You may have read the uh, New York Times um, Sunday Magazine article. I think it was from January of this year. Uh, he was a lobsterman uh, out, uh, I think, just a little bit uh, off the tip of Montauk. Uh, and fell out of his boat and nobody knew it uh, for hours and hours and hours. Nobody knew it. He was just in the water. And his boat, uh, meanwhile, was just going away from him. So he wasn't anywhere near the boat. Uh, anyway, you'll hear that story as we go on. And, and the, towards the end of the show, we're going to talk to Danny McGinnis. Uh, he's the lead instructor at Survival Systems USA in Groton. There actually are companies which try to prepare you to pre- prepare their clients uh, to survive certain things uh, and learn what the techniques are. But uh, just to make life as difficult as possible here at the beginning of the show, uh, we're going to have two guests named Michael. Uh, both of them have names that end in AS. So um, this could be extraordinarily confusing, even though I know one of these two Michaels pretty well. Uh, Michael Togus uh, is is joining us. He's the author or co-author of 23 books, including Fatal Forecast, Overboard, and The Finest, Finest Hours. He actually does write a lot about uh, people who are in these desperate uh, survival situations, some of whom live and some of whom die. And you say the same thing really about Michael Cotis. He's associate director of the Center for Environmental Journalism at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's a photojournalist and the author of High Crimes, The Fate of Everest in an Age of Greed. Uh, you may remember also the reporting that he did about uh, about uh, that trek in Everest for the Hartford Current when he worked there. Uh, his work has appeared in several other publications, including the New York Times, Outside.com, and OnEarth.org. His latest book, Mega Fire uh, will be uh, published in 2015. It uh, is, as you might guess, about the epidemic of of wildfires. And once again, sort of who survived and who didn't, particularly among the people uh, trained to go and fight them. So, Michael Cotis, I'm going to begin with you because there are all kinds of meaningful distinctions that we can make here. But maybe one distinction we can start by making is it seems to me as though, for a variety of reasons, we're hearing more of these stories of survival and likely to hear more of these stories of survival because, A, all kinds of people think that they are adventurers. I mean, that's, I think, something you really uh, discovered in, uh, in the book that became High Crimes. Also, all kinds of people think that they're safe because they have a GPS or something with them and, and they're hiking Katahdin and they really have lost track of the time or, or whatever. And people are increasingly inclined to build and live in places that are often subject to real you know, changes, sudden and dangerous changes in the environment. I mean, first of all, would you agree or disagree with what, with what I just said? Are there more people who are just who are putting themselves at risk, maybe without even realizing they're putting themselves at risk? 
Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, as is um, the dependence on technology. And technology can be a great benefit to survival. But in the case of uh, a number of the really catastrophic wildfires that we've seen in the West, and particularly here in Colorado, we have a combination of a huge increase in population in very fire-prone landscapes, a study uh, for a series of stories I did looking at census data and uh, what we call the red zone here in Colorado, which are our most dangerous and flammable forests, uh, very often more flammable than they've been historically for a variety of reasons. And that showed uh, just between 2000 and 2010, we had about 100,000 people move into our most flammable forests in, in a variety of developments. I mean, some of these are McMansions and some of these are people in in miners' shacks that have been uh, renovated to be off the grid. And a huge portion of that population depends on things like, say, reverse 911 calls. So uh, if your community is threatened by a wildfire, uh, 911 will call backwards and let all the people in a threatened community know about that. But in the case of uh, most of the really tragic fires that we've seen here, um, the calls either did not come or they went to the wrong places. In one case, a number of people were killed in a fire where all of them had called uh, 911, been told that, you know, you're safe for the time being, and then when the reverse 911's calls went out, some of them went to Texas rather than to Colorado. So, you know, a lot of these communities are expecting that uh, hazards are going to be mitigated by a variety of technologies that are supposed to make, uh, you know, living where they live safe, but uh, you know, none of those technologies are foolproof, and uh, particularly when you have um, a big disaster like that, uh, you know, a, a big cataclysmic event, um, there are so many other things going on. You know, phone lines can get tied up. Cell phones may not work. GPS uh, often in the mountains is, uh, is a little unreliable. So there's a variety of things that can go wrong, and you know, sometimes you're talking about seconds um, you know, between you know, surviving that incident or not. You know, looking at that, I don't, I don't know how easy it is to kind of analogize between that and, and what you discovered uh, on Everest. But, I mean, in each case, you maybe have a group of people who know that they're at risk, know that they're at more, more at risk because of where they're living or where they've decided to, to trek than the average person is sitting in his house in wherever USA. And they also, I assume, think that they're kind of prepared for it. That I mean, if you're going to Everest, presumably you really think you're very prepared. And if you live in one of these fire-prone areas, I mean, you've got to be aware of it. I'm, I'm sure most of the people have some idea that they are dependent on the reverse 911 system, that this could happen. Do you find that so within that frame of mind, you know, I, I'm in this situation, and I, I think I'm prepared for it. There are all kinds of gradations. I mean, people who really are prepared for it and people who have somehow or other lulled themselves or, or conned themselves into thinking they're prepared for it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And more and more, you know, we have populations, both uh, adventurers who are choosing to go into hazardous environments and people who live in a hazardous environment, uh, you know, for long periods of time who are to some degree deluding themselves uh, about the hazard that they face. And that population in, in both groups is growing because there are more and more options to pass on the responsibility to make the survival decisions to somebody else or to um, some technology. So if you look at the case of mountaineering, you know, the, the uh, amount of mountain guiding that goes on, and particularly on, on really high peaks where you have a lot of people there that don't have that much experience, but they're with a guiding outfit. And so the guiding outfit checks the weather for them. They don't check it themselves. And they may, you know, the guiding outfit or their guide, 
guide may determine if the route is safe or not or if there's uh, if things are avalanche prone and they may not even have the skills to make those decisions themselves whereas you know historically you know you you worked your way into the mountains and by the time you got to the high peaks you had developed a, a pretty substantial skill set and by the same token you've got lots of people that live in really hazardous environments be it uh, you know they're in a, a very flammable forest or they live on a coastline that's prone to very severe storms who are uh, allowing for uh, emergency responders or technologies to decide when they should leave um, and you know in the case of uh, of my interviewing both of, of people that live in hazardous landscapes but also the emergency responders that uh, that deal with them the hazards increasing for both of them because uh, the people that live there may not understand the way fire works where they are or if uh, you know they're prone to having uh, severe damage from a storm that comes onto uh, their property and they also are expecting the emergency responders to do more than they traditionally did to help them out um, you know in the case of forest firefighters back when I uh, did some some wildland firefighting I mean it was it was <clears throat> never really an option to protect properties. You know, we were in the woods, and it's very easy to step back from a stand of trees if they're going to burn up, but there's too much risk for you. That's much harder to do if you're uh, in woods that are against a housing development and you know there are people in those homes. Um, you know, you probably are going to be willing to take more risks as an emergency responder and risk your own survival because you feel as though there is more at stake in what you're doing. Yeah, so we have this, this kind of layer cake of survival, uh, the people uh, who are uh, in harm's way and perhaps need to be rescued, and then the people who really have, who have trained, who are athletes and who are uh, hyper-prepared people, uh, but who also have to survive the process of helping the other people survive. I want to bring into this conversation Michael Togas, as I said, He's the author of 23 books, including Fatal Forecast, Overboard, and The Finest Hours. A lot of his books really are uh, about these kinds of situations and, and, and focus often on people who aren't necessarily thrill seekers, although there are a few of those, but often people who are just have jobs that are really dangerous. Uh, and a lot of those jobs take them out in the sea. Um, Michael, um, since it is we're coming on to Thanksgiving week uh, here in New England, uh, I, I was thinking maybe you, you might want to quickly tell the story uh, of Ernie Hazard. This is a guy who, uh, first of all, what a great name, but uh, second of all, um, a guy who probably shouldn't be alive by, by all odds. This is an example of somebody who did survive uh, an incredibly harrowing situation. Uh, just give us a, a kind of quick recap uh, of what happened yes. to him. Ernie Hazard uh, was on board a 50-foot uh, commercial fishing vessel 200 miles off Cape Cod in what I call the, the fatal forecast storm because it was not forecast and there was a, uh, an issue with the National Weather Service. But in the course of this storm... Two waves joined together into a, a super wave, a rogue wave, if you will, that's estimated to be between 90 and 100 feet. And two vessels were hit by this 100-foot wave. And on Ernie's vessel, it pitch-pulled, meaning it came off the wave bow first, the bow buried in the water, the stern pitched over the bow, and all four men are, are trapped in the capsized vessel. And this is at this time of year, late November, Ernie's the only one that, that gets out. He had an air pocket, uh, took a gulp of air, went down to find his way out of the vessel. And now he's in these 60-foot seas, and he is, he's got a big decision to make. 
do I hang on to this bucket that I found that's keeping me, my head above all the foam, or do I try to swim back to the vessel? And his instincts were right. The vessel is your best chance. Gets there. It's, it's overturned. He can't climb on top of it. Too slimy. He goes around the other side, and he can't believe it. There's the inflated life raft. It inflated just as it was designed to do. The CO2 cartridges went off. And Ernie stayed in the life raft tied to the vessel for about maybe two hours, hoping his buddies would get out. And they never did, and then the boat started to sink, pulling the life raft down with it. And that's when he he cut the tether. And that was the beginning of a three-day ordeal that's almost beyond comprehension, where he's being repeatedly thrown out of this, this damaged life raft, and the water temperature's 53 degrees, air temperature at night is in the 40s, in the daytime it's in the 50s. And he just undergoes this incredible three-day ordeal that very few people on the planet could survive, um, and very few people on the planet have ever even seen a 100-foot wave. Um, you know, I'm going to uh, throw it back to Michael Cotis. I'm going to ask you both the same question, but I'm going to start with Michael Cotis. Um, uh, and um, so, Michael Cotis, based on everything that you've seen, you know, reporting about these kinds of situations, whether it's mountaineering in Everest on Everest or or um, wildfires in Colorado and California, um, let's say that uh, Kion and Wolf, Kion Wolf and I start out uh, on the same trek on the same day, and uh, who knows where we're going? Whether we're uh, doing a little mountaineering or we're going uh, out into the wilderness somewhere, um, and we encounter the same conditions. And let's imagine uh, for a moment that we're closer in age than we really are, uh, and we have basically the same stuff with us. What, what's going to determine? And let's imagine that one of us makes it out, or one of it, one of us, one of us doesn't. What, what's going to be the make or break things? What kinds of things determine survival versus non-survival? I'm sure you both have a lot of ideas about this, but Michael Cotis, you go first. Um, so I think, you know, one thing that's been interesting uh, that I read about uh, fairly recently in, in mountaineering literature is the sense that um, the people that survive have the right balance of optimism so that they don't tend to give up and they believe they can overcome this, and pessimism in that they are prepared for the worst, and you know they have tried to have what they need for when things go wrong, and uh, you know if you know checked weather reports, done all of the uh, the due diligence to give themselves the best odds of surviving, and that's a that's a difficult combination to balance out you know to have that belief that uh things could uh, really go to hell but that i actually can overcome the worst things that get dealt to me and and that i can maintain that optimism that keeps me fighting um another thing that you told us about also uh, michael Curtis, was i mean this doesn't happen in every case but with a uh, um a surprisingly high degree of, fre- of frequency. Uh, they do have these ex- uh, people in these situations will have experiences not, well actually it would be kind of a spoiler if I said not unlike what happens in, in gravity, but um, not unlike what you, you might have seen in certain movies where somebody appears to be with them who's not really with them. Somebody who's uh, who's somewhere else uh, is is present and talking to them and, and becoming kind of a another channel for them. 
Yeah, you know, Maria Coffey, a, a, a mountaineering writer and adventure writer, uh, has written a book about this. Uh, I think it's called The Third Manifest, and I remember chatting with her about this at, at length when she was working on that book. And there are uh, any number of cases in the mountaineering world and, and in other you know adventure sports where uh, – Survival takes a very long time and is very arduous, and you are in you know a remote location in a place where you know you have to get out and you can't survive. So you're having to keep moving, and and keep dealing with this over a very long period of time. And that these uh, people begin to you know in in most of these cases actually hallucinate that this person is actually there with them, going through this with them, giving them advice. And, uh, you know, at the end of their survival, they'll often talk about this person that they, they sat down and chatted with or so-and-so was up ahead of me and I knew I could make it if he could make it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So, uh, Michael Togos, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, uh, imagine, I mean, we can sort of come back to the issues of preparation and things like that, which are really important. But let's imagine two people are kind of comparably prepared. Uh, they're out on the water. The same storm hits. Um, they're in roughly the same amount of danger. You've looked at so many of these cases. What are the differences you see that, that help some people and penalize others? The, the folks that made it did, did have some common uh, mental techniques, if you will. Uh, the the first one being they, they didn't waste any time thinking, oh, what was me? How did I get in this situation? Um, they went right to what's the next right thing? You know, what is the next thing I need to do to stay alive? And they oftentimes explained it to me in a way that they broke time down into small Increments. If they looked at the big picture, you know, I gotta, I may be out here three days in the North Atlantic. Uh, it would be debilitating, and they'd give up. They'd become so depressed. So they would break time down to maybe half-hour increments. And in Ernie Hazard's case, in the Fatal Forecast book, he would break down to a half hour, do whatever he had to do to improve his situation. But then he'd give himself a pat on the back. And when I interviewed him. I said, what do you mean a pat on the back? He said, out loud, I would be encouraging myself. I'd be talking to myself, saying things like, good job, Ernie, you just made it another half hour. Now, what do you got to do next? And, you know, going back to sometimes another person would appear. In some cases, they'll focus on another person, and it may not be a hallucination, but it could be one person in their life that, that needs them so that when they feel like giving up and it, you know, the pain will be over quickly, they think of that one person and they, they fight on a little longer. They hold that mental image of the person that needs them. And oftentimes it's a, a child. Um, you know, somebody has got a, a young child at home and they just keep that mental image and fight, fight for the next half hour. And so, you know, when I lecture on this, I call it, the power of little steps. Uh, they're not looking at the, the huge picture because it's too overwhelming. They don't waste any time on, uh, in Ernie Hazard's case, how did the National Weather Service screw up so badly? They're looking at, I got a half hour, what do I do next? Um, I'm going to ask you, again, a similar kind of question, but I'll start uh, with you again, Michael Cotis. Um, okay, so I sort of uh, rigged the game before by making the two people more or less equal. But one 
difference that seems to leap out at me reading your stuff, reading Michael Togas' stuff, uh, reading a lot of this stuff, is that um, there's a difference between somebody who has sort of a lot of institutional memory kind of about the outdoors and somebody who's well-equipped and maybe has hired good guides or, or whatever, but, but doesn't. It seems as though, you know, we're going to be talking to John Aldridge in just a second, who was at home in the sea, as I'm sure Ernie Hazard was. This was a place he knew. He'd known it for a long time. He knew what it was going to do and what it wasn't going to do. And and, and I'm assuming that that's kind of true in a lot of these things, especially mountaineering, uh, that if you know the mountain, if, you, if you've seen the mountain and the weather on the mountain do things 50 other times, you just have a natural advantage that somebody who's new, well-equipped, and well-guided won't have. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, one thing I've I've written about in the past is is avalanche and you know how people prepare and 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 what determines whether people survive avalanches and you know one thing that is uh, is true of people that that tend to do well in the mountains and may have encountered a number of avalanches but never been buried or or injured by one is this sense that they're always testing the snow from the moment that they go in and you know they've just got a sense of how it feels under their feet and what it feels like when a pole pushes into it and they'll stop and poke at the snow with a stick because they've got this understanding of it and they can really sense uh, minor changes fairly quickly and almost instinctually. Um, It's also something that has uh, proven to be the case in in dealing with wildfires that I write about now. Um, I I just did an interview with uh, uh, the incident commander for the city of Colorado Springs during the Waldo Canyon fire a couple of years ago where about 350 homes were burned and and, a huge crew of firefighters were um, were nearly overrun and, and retreated really basically just in time so that none of them perished. And the incident commander who called for the retreat um, wasn't really sure exactly what he was responding to. Things were changing very fast. The fire was getting really bad, and he just decided, we have to go, we have to retreat. And he said, you know, a week after that happened, another uh, firefighter, same amount of experience as him, maybe not as much as experience working in forest fires as well as house fires, came into his office and said, it's really good you were there, because if it had been me, we'd be dead. Um, I would not have made the same decision that you made, and I know you don't know why you made that decision, but somewhere you had a sense of what was happening that the people that were just looking at it didn't. That's, that, that is amazing. And so, um, uh, Michael Togas, uh, same kind of question, although I think I already know the answer sort of based on what he, uh, Michael Cotis is saying and what, what you said so far. But, you know, I was even I was reading an interview with um, one of the people that you had written about, uh, a guy named Locke Reedy. Uh, uh, who is also a survivor of an overboard kind of situation, also from Connecticut. Um, And one thing I noticed, one thing that sort of jumped out at me was he said, you know, he sees a lot of people getting on boats wearing um, windbreakers that are blue or white or something. And that those people have effectively not reckoned at all with the possibility that somebody might have to look for them on on the ocean at some point. They're just, their minds just aren't working that way. Uh, And, and, I would assume this is part of survival, too, that you just sort of think about a lot of things like that. Like, if I were overboard, could anybody see the garment I'm wearing? Yeah, Locke was very lucky. Uh, the The only thing that saved him, because I interviewed the Coast Guard crew on the C-130 in the, the overboard search, and uh, they went right over Locke and could not, could not see him. And Locke was thinking, if I don't get rescued in the daytime, forget it. But what happened was he did have a, a tiny little strobe light, and at night 
that was seen, and that's what what saved his life. And he took that strobe off of the captain who was with him, who had died, and he, he actually had kept the captain's body with himself on a, a vow that Locke made that if I live, I'm going to take you home, his good friend home. And, you know, he, he was doing that more out of loyalty and love, but yet that was the strobe. It was the dead captain's strobe that saved Locke's life. And if I can go back to the, you know, the people sure. we're just talking about who are most familiar with, say, mountaineering or the ocean, uh, there is a flip side to that I'm finding, and that's overconfidence. Mm-hmm. I I just did a book called Rescue of the Bounty. It was the tall ship bounty that sank in Superstorm Sandy. And the captain was one of those people that we were just discussing who had, you know, such a intimate knowledge of the ocean and had been the captain of this tall ship for 10 years. But he he was blinded by a little bit of his overconfidence and his past experiences that he could get around hurricanes. And Superstorm Sandy was a hurricane you could not get around. It was the widest breadth-wise, 900 miles across hurricane ever recorded. And so his overconfidence, and I call that he was projecting past outcomes. He'd been in two other hurricanes before. He figured it out. They made it just fine. He's like, I can do it again. He even talked his whole crew into coming with him, saying, I've done this before. Don't worry. And he runs into a hurricane of a totally different kind. And there is a loss of life. And actually, the captain was one of the people who lost his life. Um, we're going to grab a quick break, and since we're talking about being lost at sea, uh, we're going to bring in John Aldridge, who has uh, a story very much like this uh, to tell about what it's like to be lost at sea, to know people are looking at for you, but maybe they didn't start looking for you for quite a few hours before you were dumped overboard. We're talking about here today is kind of it's serious and sobering and, and eerie stuff. Uh, people who are just in terrible situations, situations that go beyond merely threatening their lives, but really sort of tip the odds against their survival. And and, and some of them actually are able to sur- to survive. Um, and let me just quickly say, uh, it is a snowy day here in uh, New England. Uh, if you're out in your car, I hope you did just bring one or two things with you. It'd be good if you had a flashlight, right? It'd be good if there's a flashlight in your car. It'd be good if there's a blanket in your car, things like that. And so if you don't have it today, uh, as you listen to these stories, make a little mental note. Next time you go out on a snowy day, make sure you've got a flashlight, a blanket, maybe one or two other things. Um, Because I've noticed what people do is what they do is they buy a hammer with a claw on it so they can smash out their um, driver's side window and then the uh, the other side of the thing, it cuts their seatbelt. Because that happens to you all the time. You need to do that. But they don't have a flashlight or a blanket. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to talk to John Aldrich now. Uh, his story is well known to some. It uh, was an article, a uh, fascinating article in The New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine. But it's better known to him. Uh, John Aldrich, uh, I'll let you tell your own story. But you were uh, on a lobster boat. You're a lobsterman. Uh, and an improbable series of events put you in the water in a situation where for hours nobody knew that you were in the water. I- I'll let you take over. Yes, it wasn't one of my uh, best decisions that day, that's for sure. But uh, 
Uh, I guess about 3.30 in the morning, I was getting the boat ready to start fishing for the day. Uh, we were about two hours away from our fishing grounds and about 50 miles from shore. And uh, I had grabbed onto a cooler to uh, move it off one of the hatches. Um, I needed to get into there to shut off one of the valves. And with that, the handle had snapped, and I went flying out the back of the boat. The, the back of the boat has no transom. So my back was to it, which was another... You know, not a smart move, and uh, the handle had snapped. And I went flying into the water about 3 o'clock in the morning um, with the boat on autopilot, you know, heading south, heading uh, heading away from me. Um, immediately, you know, panic and yelling and screaming, but my crew was asleep down below. And I knew they weren't going to be able to hear me, so um, basically, you know, I was, I was on my own, you know, and... Uh, couple of seconds of freaking out, panicking, and just about ready to drown, I realized that my boots were uh, were pretty buoyant, and I ended up grabbing onto them <clears throat> just out of desperation. I had nothing else to grab onto to catch my last breath. And um, Well, you might be shortchanging yourself a little bit here, so let's stop with those boots for a second and just say one of the things that people are ordinarily told about overboard situations is jettison your boots, get rid of your boots. Your boots are filling up with water, and they're going to pull you down. You had a kind of unusual pair of boots, and and what you figured out was that you could kind of make pontoons out of them, right? Yes, yes. They were, uh, I mean, as soon as I fell in the water, I basically was on my back, and the boots were like, you know, I was doing like the backstroke because the boots were so buoyant. And, you know, I was panicking at the time, so I didn't really, you know, figure that part out until I was about to drown, basically. And then I just grabbed onto them, and I was like, wow, these things are really buoyant. I basically emptied the water out of them and put an air pocket in them and put one under each arm. And uh, it gave me time to start thinking and assess the situation I was in. Um, but the percentage of people who could have figured that whole thing out and figured out how to make an air bubble in the boot, it's a low percentage. You're, I think, uh, unusual in that regard. And, I mean, right away, this, the ocean made itself clear that it was a dangerous place. You knew that all went, already. You spent your life on it. But uh, it didn't take too long before there were 350-pound sharks circling around you, right? Yeah, I mean, immediately hitting the water... Um the, the storm petrels, little black birds, they were dive bombing on me, checking me out and trying to peck at me. So I had to, you know, not only try to stay uh, stay afloat, but dodge the birds dive bombing at me. And then, uh, then an hour or two later, you know, I had a couple of uh, two, two blue sharks swimming around me. So, um, you know, trying to deal with that and trying to keep my heart rate down and not panic over them being around me so that they wouldn't really come check me out. You know, it was a whole mental game in itself. But you were consciously trying to keep your heart rate slow. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and did you know to do I mean, did you know to do that because of conversations that you've had, because of sailor's lore? Uh, did you know it? Did you just sort of think that out, figure that out? Or, I mean, how did you? I, it wouldn't have occurred to me in that situation to see if I could slow well, my heart rate down. It's basic, you know, survival instinct, I would guess. You know, I mean, you you know, like with a dog, you know, you try to not be scared around a dog so he doesn't get scared and try to bite you. Kind of like the same thing, you know, try to just be be confident in yourself and, uh, you know, portray that. This way they, they, they don't really bother you. I, I guess I've I read it other places and seen it in, in real life, so that's pretty much where I got that from. 
So, I mean, this story takes a long time to tell, and we don't have that much time. But, I mean, w- w- you, you continue to think pretty clearly. One of the things you thought was maybe it would be good to be near a buoy. Uh, the first time you uh, tried to get to a buoy, that didn't work out so well. The second time you got to a buoy, and it still wasn't exactly really what you needed. I think you eventually wound up joining two buoys together and, and creating a line between them, uh, a rope that you could kind of straddle so you could kind of stay out of the water that way. Do I have that right? Yes, basically, yeah. I just kept trying to get more and more in the search pattern because after I got to the first buoy, I realized that they were looking to me, you know, they were looking for me way to the west, and, and, and I saw that. And, uh, you know, I basically just kept setting goals for myself, you know, from the from the, from the nighttime just to stay alive to the daylight, and then the daylight just to stay alive to find a buoy. I knew the area I was fishing in because that's where we fish. I'm accustomed to the uh, to the waters around there. And um, I just try to use every advantage that I can to, to better my uh, better my situation at, at each time. Um, uh, you did eventually uh, get spot, spotted, uh, marked, and, and rescued. How many hours were you in the water? I guess we estimate around twelve to fourteen hours. Um, well, you, well, you know, Michael Togas, who writes about this kind of stuff, has been listening to this whole conversation. And Michael Togas, I'm guessing you hear some common threads in what John Aldridge is saying and, and some of the other people that you've talked to who survive situations like this. What are you hearing in John Aldridge that is familiar to you? Yeah, I sure do. And, and first, John, it's so great to hear your voice. <laughs> uh, it's just wonderful that you were able to somehow tamp down that those emotions, that that surge of adrenaline going through you that can cause you to to panic, can cause you to do irrational things. And it, it really yeah. sounds like you and Ernie Hazard from Fatal Forecast are, are of the similar breed that you're like, okay, what do I got to do next to increase my odds of being found? Exactly. You know, your idea of making a bigger target for yourself with those buoys is is perfect. Um, I, I want to ask both of you the same question, but I'm going to start with you, John Aldridge. Um, uh, uh, one th- question a lot of people would have is after an experience like that, where you really were for many hours staring probable death in the face, whether you wanted to admit that to yourself or not at the time, uh, a lot of people would say, well, it's time for me to get a dry land job. I think I'll run a lobster restaurant, uh, you know, about a half a mile inland and never go out on the water again. That is not the choice you made. Can you say something about that? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was definitely a traumatizing thing, but it just didn't it didn't affect me all that much. I mean, I mean, it affected me, but it affected mostly the people around me, I think, more than it really internally affected me. Um, but, I mean, it's what I do. I live on the water. I live on the ocean. It's part of me. Um, it's kind of hard to... To just separate from that, I mean, yes, this was a traumatizing incident, but, you know, I guess it's where I'm supposed to be, you know. Um, and uh, Michael Togas, I'm wondering, in all these survivors, and you've talked to, I think, about 75 or more survivors uh, of dangerous situations, um, how does that break down in terms of uh, either um, uh, continuing on with the thing that they were doing when they got in all this trouble versus uh, avoiding it for the rest of their lives? What, what do most of them do? I would say most are, are similar to John, and I'll give one example. Uh, Locke Reedy, the Connecticut man in the, in the book Overboard, who, who spent uh, 48 hours in, the, in a storm in the ocean um, just with a, a life vest on only, he surprised me. We became good friends after working together on the book, but he surprised me 
later by saying, would you like to do a sale to Bermuda with me? And mm-hmm. I'm too chicken. So I said, no, but I was shocked. I said, Locke, you mean you would try that again after what happened to you of your best friend dying in your arms and, you know, 48 hours in the ocean? And he said, yes, I would do a couple things differently, but I, I do plan to, to try that trip again. So I found that to be you know, maybe 85% of the time that they get back on the horse and they've learned something and they continue. They, You know, I always thought if you and John, you can speak up on this. I always thought, well, a survivor would change their whole life. You know, sell, sell your home, sell everything and travel the world because you've had this close call. And that's not what happens. It's very mm. subtle. There are changes, but they're, they're very subtle. I've changed. I've changed, you know, my safety procedures on the boat big time, stuff like that. You know, we we have a tailgate on the back of the boat now that folds up and down so that there's no open tailgate when we're, you know, driving around and and personal e-perb and life jacket and all that stuff now. So, I mean, that protocol is good, but basically it's the same, same thing we're going through, you know, same act every uh-huh. day. Um, John Aldridge, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Your story is an amazing one. Just before we go to break here, I'm going to bring uh, Michael Cotis back on there. Um, you know, uh, he just used an interesting word, Michael Cotis, and that was safety protocols. And I know that's something you've looked at a lot, too, with the firefighters who fight these extreme wildfires in California and Colorado. You know, in kind of the sense that if you have the right safety protocols, presumably you'll be safe or you'll be so much safer that the, the risk will go down. How does that, how has that worked out in these California situations or call it Colorado situations? Well, in a number of these situations, you know, the, in the, in the wildland firefighting arena, they have the 10 standard fire orders and 18 watch out situations. But when um, things really uh, go wrong and, and they can go wrong very, very fast, um, very often those, um, those safety protocols kind of go out the window. You know, for one thing, as somebody who was supposed to know them, when uh, when you get into uh, the the heat of the work, pardon the pun, um, it's kind of like trying to recite the Bill of Rights. You know, in a hurricane, you know, it's really hard to remember all these safety protocols and these safety rules. And there are some basic things that usually you can nail down and pretty much always do. And then there are other things where it's just really hard to uh, to remember and keep them straight when things are happening really, really fast. And and then the other thing is that you know um, it's very easy to overrule a safety protocol um, in a in a situation where it seems counterintuitive, even though it actually may make total sense. You know, and very often you'll see in in wildfire uh, tragedies, people uh, run away from the fire uphill, even though fire burns far faster uphill and they're actually going into a more dangerous place. And, you know, probably the most famous um, uh, example of that was in the Man Gulch disaster in 1949, in which, uh, you know, 13 smoke jumpers were killed and the, the leader of their crew lit a backfire, a, you know, a known technique, but not to these guys uh, to escape this fire. Basically, he set a fire in grass ahead of the main fire, and then he was able to lay down in this burnt grass when the other fire burnt over um, everybody else. And he tried to get his entire crew to go into that with him, and none of them would. They all continued to run from the fire in a race that most of them had to know they would never win. 
Wow. Uh, Michael Cota, so great to talk to you. So great to hear your voice back on our airwaves. Uh, and we can't wait for the book, uh, which is coming out in 2015, uh, the book of, about these fires. Uh, and that is called Mega Fire. Uh, we'll take a quick break here. We'll come back. We'll talk. We still got uh, Michael Togas. Uh, and we've got uh, Danny McInnes, who uh, trains people to survive things they would not otherwise survive. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, from a concept by intern Colleen Mason. Special thanks to our intern today, Jackie Filson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colleen, and Katie Tolarski is our executive producer. For show pages, photos, and news, visit our website, WNPR.org. Coming up in the next two days, we have special holiday programming, and we'll be back with The Scramble on Monday. Now, back to Colin. All right. And yes, and special thanks to Kion Wolf and to Jackie Filson, who are here. This building is getting very empty and very quiet as the storm uh, gets a little harder and Thanksgiving gets a little closer. Uh, so thanks for uh, toughing it out here. I think Kion and I have done a lot of these. We did one. I think was, was it Hurricane Sandy, I think, where I did I hosted all three shows. But Sir Dankowski was trying to get back from a trip and Faith was not uh, able to do her show. So I hosted all three shows. And Kion is always here because she is tough. Uh, also, she lives very nearby. So um, we're going to in, in, in the last segment here, we really want to spend a little bit of time just telling you what you could learn or what you could know so that I mean, you, you can never know when a crisis is going to hit you and you're on a plane and it, it lands in the water. Uh, you're in a building and it catches on fire. Uh, you're in your house and a hurricane uh, hits and hits harder than you'd expected. Um, what kinds of things can you do? What kinds of things can you know? What habits of mind can you have? So uh, Michael Togus is going to stay with us uh, on this. I know he does some speaking about this to people, but we're uh, going to key in here for a moment uh, to, with Danny McGinnis. Uh, he's the lead instructor at Survival Systems USA in Groton, where people are trained for exactly these kinds of things. And so, Danny, what about that? Are, are there things that you could say to anybody not necessarily somebody who's going to go on a dangerous trip or something like that, but just people living their lives and, and things come up that are dangerous, that are life-threatening. Are there sort of habits of mind or habits of life that, that are just good ones to get into? Generally, just preparation in general, but you have to practice what you're preparing for. So it's one thing to simply just sit down, think about what you're going to be getting involved in, think about the risks, think about what equipment you can have available to you and all that. Um, and you can put all that together, but if you never practice it, it's it's probably not going to work the way that you want it to when everything starts happening. So, so preparation is one side, but practice of that is uh, is another side. And how can how can you? Pra- I mean, preparation and practice. I mean, maybe you could do that around your house or your business. Maybe oh, like know where the fire exits are, know where the extinguishers are, that kind of thing. Does or does it go beyond that? start with that, and that's a very good start. Um, possibly maybe finding a place that does fire extinguisher training so you can actually deploy one, see how it works, um, see what it feels like when it goes off in your hands, um, uh, know how to control the the you know uh, the directional tube and all that. So it's little things that are going to make the situation hopefully able to be controlled a little bit, little bit sooner than later. 
You know, I think uh, at the beginning of the show, uh, Michael Curtis was talking about how also people think somebody else is going to help them. You know, they they think uh, that there's a, a, a guide that they've hired for their mountaineering who's going to help them so they don't have to know this thing. Or if we're on a plane, we think, well, if it, it dumps on the water, you know, the flight crew, somebody will get us out or the stairs will deploy or something's going to happen. Um, and I assume that's actually sort of a bad way of thinking, a bad habit of thinking to fall into. It's, it's kind of the same thing that someone else had mentioned about the reliance on the equipment that's out there. You know, if, if you only walk out into the woods with a GPS and if that fails on you, you've got nothing else to, uh, you know, to save you except for yourself. But if you're relying on the Coast Guard or the National Guard or someone to come in and get you on top of that, um, you have nothing to rely on beyond that, then it's, it's not going to be a good situation. So if you've, you've got to have some self-reliance. You've got you've to you've be ready to deal with it yourself. And the sooner you get rescued, hopefully the better out for yourself and the whole situation and any others that are with you. Uh, but you've really got to know what to do yourself. So, um, One of the things you do is you do prepare people for situations where a plane ditches uh, over water. I, and there actually is something called a dunker. That you, explain what the dunker is. The, the, it's, it's what we call the METS. It's a modular egress training simulator, and it's about the size of a small school bus that we've got different exits we can put on the outside. We've got different seats we can put on the inside, and we have seats for the pilots. We have seat, seats for the passengers, just like you're on an airliner um, or maybe the back of a helicopter. And we train people for a very unique situation, which is when the aircraft contacts the water and then submerges relatively soon afterwards, um, usually within a matter of seconds. So you don't have that landing like the airliner down New York City and then some time to get out on the surface. Basically, you, you start to submerge within three, four, five seconds. And there's not much time in between there to prepare for it, so you have to know beforehand. So it's a very another unique situation that we're, we're lucky to be able to replicate to a degree and show people what we can. But I would assume a, for a, a large percentage of people, that's a really frightening kind of training. I mean, one that would call out some of the panic we've been talking about. It, it does. It, it, it touches on a lot of things. Some people just don't like the water, and when we have our conveyance, we, we have seats, we have seat belts, we have doors blocking your way out, so it's not just holding your breath and going under the water. You've got things to do before you can get yourself back up to the surface, and, and people who are not confident on their breath hold, not confident in their swimming abilities, um, it definitely adds to the panic side, where they just may not be able to think as clearly as they would like to or need to to get themselves out. But the key is just being able to, to keep as calm as you can, and that just helps you think a little bit clearly. Is it your position that going through some kind of training like that prepares you for other things? In other words, we, what we, what we want to be is like John Aldridge, uh, like uh, Ernie Hazard, and, and, and we want that kind of clarity to come to us if we're in a train derailment or, uh, you know, or, or whatever it is, some horrible thing that happens. And is it your thought that like going through a thing like this dunker where you have to get through obstacles and get out of the situation, is, it, is part of the goal to make you into the kind of person who could deal with a different kind of situation in a calmer state of mind? Well, I think it's innately with, with, with what we deal with. There, there are some innate fears that just human beings in general being under the water. We're not aquatic creatures, so we don't really like being down there for very long. But people are surprised that it only takes them 10, 15 seconds to, to usually get themselves out if they're able to do things correctly. Um, and if the situation dictates that they're, they're, uh, they have some, you know, some good luck on their side, um, those things definitely help out. Um, but hopefully that gets further, gets them prepared for the next situation, the next one, and keeps them thinking that, 
you know, things can go wrong. Things can happen to us, and we need to be prepared for whether we're in Walmart or in a train station or in an aircraft, you know, wherever it may be. So hopefully it keeps going with people for life, not just for the employment or for the job and all that. So uh, you're going to be at Thanksgiving dinner tomorrow, and maybe there'll be somebody there who doesn't know you that well but finds out what you do and says, well, give me one tip or one or two tips. Like, you know, is there a seat I shouldn't sit on on a bus or on an airplane? Or is there, I mean, give me one sort of concrete thing. What would you say to that person? Well, I think the big thing is is being making making sure you have some self reliance. You've you got a way to think about what you're getting into and, and have a plan for dealing with it. Um, be, and just situational awareness. Be aware of what's around you, what the equipment is, what the what the uh, cabin attendants are talking about with the safety briefings on the airliners. They're they're doing that for a reason, and you, you hear it enough times that people kind of blank it out. So you just kind of want to not not kind of go with the situation. Just always kind of keep your eyes about you and uh, and make sure you're prepared for whatever may happen. So all right, Danny McGinnis, good advice, uh, Michael Togan. We've got one minute left. I'm going to let you have the last word. I'm going to ask you sort of a similar question based on talking to all of these survivors from all of these situations. When you, I know you give lectures to businesses and stuff like that. I mean, do you have a, a particular tip that you give to people about just in general how to get through life and if one of these things comes up? Basically breaking down this, this overwhelming situation into workable pieces. And again, that, that power of little steps and as Dan said, you know, thinking it, it through as best you can, and then you may have a plan, but there's new information coming in, so alter your plan. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, hikers get in trouble because their plan is to hit the mountaintop, and that's what they're going to do, but new information's coming in, and that's, hey, snow's coming. Maybe you're going to have to change this plan. And, boy, people who stick to the plan or schedule – I often say the worst thing on a boat is the calendar because you're looking at a schedule mm. and not the new information. So that flexibility of, of changing the plan when you need to and breaking those uh, traumatic pieces down into doable. Do the, I, I like to say do the next right thing. Mm. Great advice, uh, Michael Douglas. Thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, boy... <laughs> I have to. I have a lot of thinking to do here. I can. I can. I'm. I have no idea how to use a fire extinguisher. I would like to say that. I don't even know where the fire extinguisher is on this floor. And if I could find it, I'm not sure that I would know how to operate it. So, uh, it's a learning curve. Thanks very much uh, to Kion Wolf and Jackie Filson. Betsy Kaplan uh, pulled this show together. Did a great job. And uh, we'll see you on Monday.